Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Saturday, November 4th and, uh, and Sunday, November 5th, 2023. Uh, we have a few anniversaries on November 4th, 1979. This is the infamous start of the Iran hostage crisis. There is a piece uh, about this up at the website if you want to read more. Uh, suffice to say, a group of Iranian students seized the U.S. embassy. They took hostages. Uh, they were hostage. They were kept uh, captive for a very long time. Uh, the uh, incident helped Ayatollah Khomeini consolidate his control over the Iranian revolution and sent U.S.-Iranian relations into a tailspin from which they have never recovered. Uh, on November 4th, 1995, Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated by a right-wing Israeli radical named Yigal Amir. Uh, Rabin's murder is often seen as the reason for the failure of the Oslo peace process, which he'd begun a couple of years earlier with Palestinian leader Yasser Arafat. Uh, Oslo had a number of internal flaws that probably doomed it to failure anyway, but Rabin's killing did hasten the shift of Israeli politics to the right and led indirectly to Benjamin Netanyahu's first stint as prime minister, which was exciting, and his second stint has been uh, even more exciting. On November 5th, 1556, the Second Battle of Panipat, the army of would-be Hindu ruler of northern India, Hemu, uh, was defeated by the Mughal Empire under the young emperor Akbar and his regent Bairam Khan. A wounded Hemu was brought before Akbar to be executed, but it is said that the 13-year-old emperor refused, so instead he touched Hemu with his sword while Bairam Khan actually did the deed uh, and uh, executed him. The Mughal victory ended a string of successes by Hemu, who had become by this point the de facto ruler of what was left of the Suri Empire. Uh, his death collapsed the kingdom and left the Mughals as the unchecked power in northern India. Also on November 5th in 1605, Guy Fawkes was arrested by English authorities for his role in the gunpowder plot a scheme by a group of Catholics to blow up the House of Lords with King James I in it and install James' young daughter Elizabeth as a Catholic monarch. Uh, Fox became the symbol of the plot, and his arrest is celebrated annually as Guy Fox Day or Guy Fox Night. His image went from reviled would-be assassin in the years following the plot to something a bit more sympathetic, depending on your perspective, by the 19th and into the 20th centuries. On to the news. In the Middle East, we start as we've always been doing lately, or uh, as we've been doing lately, with Israel-Palestine. The Associated Press, citing Israeli media reports, speculated on Sunday that Israeli ground forces would enter Gaza City within 48 hours. Probably not coincidentally, the Israeli military, or IDF, appears to have knocked out internet and cellular service in Gaza for the third time since it began attacking the territory on November 7th. Cutting connectivity, in theory, could hamper communications between the militants defending Gaza, uh, although Ga Hamas and company tend to use lower-tech communications uh, and methods, and one assumes that they were prepared for a communications outage when they launched their initial attacks in southern Israel. The other benefit of cutting communications from Israel's perspective is that it becomes far more difficult to get information as to what the IDF is doing or how it's doing it, which can obfuscate war crimes and military setbacks alike. Uh, the IDF said on Sunday that it was hitting Gaza with quote-unquote significant airstrikes and reiterated that its ground forces have surrounded Gaza City and bisected the territory into a North Gaza and a South Gaza. Uh, that second bit may be significant in that one of the many endgame scenarios here is a permanent bisection with South Gaza becoming just Gaza and North Gaza becoming, well, who knows? Uh, could be part of Israel proper, could be a no-man's land, could be a wasteland, all are 
options appear to be on the table. It's believed there are around 350,000 civilians remaining in North Gaza, and the IDF says it is opening timed corridors in its siege lines to allow people to move south if they wish. This offer would probably sound better if the IDF hadn't probably bombed an evacuation convoy on Friday. More on that below. Uh, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken made another visit to the Middle East over the weekend, carrying the Biden administration's plea for the Israelis to make some humanitarian pauses in their pummeling of Gaza so as to create the illusion of concern for Gazan civilians. I know that sounds cynical, but it's pretty close to the literal message Blinken delivered to Israeli leaders, according to Barak Ravid at Axios. Complaining that the Israeli operation was drawing a lot of heat for the U.S., Blinken reportedly told Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu that a humanitarian pause would reduce international pressure and buy the IDF more time to continue said pummeling. His message, again, according to Ravid, was, quote, we don't want to stop you, but help us help you get more time, end quote. Uh, Boy, that's a cheery message. As ever, it is really impossible to be too cynical uh, about what the U.S. government is doing. Uh, Anyway, uh, Netanyahu publicly told him to get bent and said a pause uh, would only uh, be possible if Hamas releases the hostages it's holding. Uh, supposedly, his private message to Blinken on the subject was more nuanced, whatever that means. Uh, in other items, the IDF attacked another Gazan refugee camp overnight, killing at least 47 people in Al Maghazi camp in central Gaza. That death toll may rise. There were fears that many more victims would be found trapped under rubble. This is the third camp the IDF has targeted in less than a week, including multiple strikes on the Jabalia and Barrage camps. Uh, Gazan health officials said on Sunday that the death toll since October 7th has risen to 9,770, some 4,800 of them children. Uh, The Israeli attack on a convoy of ambulances outside of Gaza's Shifa hospital on Friday has continued to reverberate through the weekend. Israeli officials continue to insist that the convoy was carrying Hamas fighters who supposedly have hundreds of kilometers of tunnels dug under every square inch of Gaza so that they can move about in relative safety, but apparently also like to go joyriding in ambulances mid-airstrike, I guess for fun. Uh, The United Nations, the Palestinian Red Crescent Society, and other aid organizations are saying that the convoy was carrying patients as one might expect, with the aim of evacuating them through the Rafah checkpoint into Egypt for medical care. That evacuation operation has been suspended as a result of Friday's strike. Uh, Blinken's trip took him to Jordan on Saturday, where a group of Arab foreign ministers pressed him to force the Israelis to accept a ceasefire. In this case, it was Blinken's turn to tell them to get bent, arguing that a ceasefire would be quote-unquote counterproductive because it would give Hamas time to quote-unquote regroup. One assumes it would not be counterproductive to the thousands of people who are being killed while the U.S. dithers around over terminology and refuses to use any leverage to corral its out-of-control client, but I digress. Uh, Blinken next turned up in the West Bank on Sunday to meet with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, a man who has about as much direct relevance to what's happening in Gaza as I do. The Biden administration seems to be operating under the delusion that the Palestinian Authority will be able to reestablish some control over Gaza when this whole catastrophe is over. 
let's leave aside that the Israeli government has done everything in its power to keep the West Bank and Gaza under different management over the past 17 plus years, and will probably want to continue that policy moving forward. The bottom line here is that there's no scenario under which the PA, which is thoroughly discredited in the West Bank, could stroll back into Gaza as the prime beneficiary of this Israeli conflagration, excuse me, uh, and be viewed as anything other than collaborationist. Even the decrepit Abbas gets this, which is why he's insisting that he won't go along with it unless it's part of a comprehensive deal that creates a Palestinian state. Uh, The IDF welcomed Lincoln to the West Bank by killing at least three more Palestinians there on Sunday. Israeli occupation forces and settlers have killed more than 150 Palestinians in the West Bank since October 7th. They've also drastically increased the rate at which they're arresting Palestinians in the West Bank, citing counterterrorism as the justification. The Jordanian Air Force reportedly airdropped medical supplies to a Jordanian field hospital in Gaza early Monday morning, citing the inadequacy of aid shipments coming into Gaza via the Rafah checkpoint from Egypt. It's unclear if they're intending to make this a regular thing. On a similar note, Blinken briefly visited Cyprus on Sunday to discuss Cypriot President Nikos Christodoulidis' idea to open a humanitarian sea lane from Cyprus to Gaza. It is unclear how realistic the idea is or how much interest there is in trying to make it happen. Palestinian day laborers who were expelled from Israel back into Gaza on Friday described being tortured by Israeli authorities following the October 7th attacks, apparently under the assumption that they knew about the attacks beforehand. Thousands of day laborers who were trapped outside of Gaza when the attacks took place remain missing, meaning they've either managed to evade arrest in the West Bank or they're still imprisoned. Uh, The weekend saw large protests in cities around the world calling for a ceasefire, including a demonstration in Washington, D.C. that drew tens of thousands of demonstrators. I think it's important to keep mentioning the public outcry, even if it is unlikely to have much substantive impact on policy. In Turkey, Blinken's regional tour took him to that country late on Sunday, and in what has to be considered a snub, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan announced beforehand that it's unlikely he'll speak with Blinken before the latter leaves on Monday. The Turkish government on Saturday became the latest in a slowly expanding list of governments to recall their ambassadors from Israel over the situation in Gaza, with Erdogan telling reporters that, quote, Netanyahu is no longer someone we can talk to. We have written him off, end quote. Uh, In Iraq, before he arrived in Turkey, Blinken made a stopover in Iraq, where he met with Prime Minister Mohammed Shia al-Sudani. Blinken was apparently there to complain about recent attacks by Iranian-backed Iraqi militias uh, targeting U.S. military personnel, which is fine, I guess. But even if Sudani wanted to do something about these incidents, it's unlikely he could. At this point, the only thing that's going to stop those attacks is a U.S. withdrawal from Iraq, which isn't happening, of course. So Blinken's gripes have the same tenor as complaining about rain. Uh, I'm sure Sudani appreciated the chance to hang out with Blinken, though. I mean, who wouldn't enjoy that? Uh, In Lebanon, there was unsurprisingly more violence along the Israeli-Lebanese border over the weekend. Reuters, citing a Lebanese source, reported that Hezbollah, quote, fired a powerful missile not yet used in the fighting, end quote, into Israel on Saturday, prompting an apparently heavy retaliation from the IDF. On Sunday, the IDF struck what it said was a vehicle, quote, identified as a suspected transport for terrorists, end quote, in southern Lebanon. According to Hezbollah and a number of Lebanese officials, the attack killed three children and their grandmother. Hezbollah retaliated by firing a rocket barrage toward the northern Israeli town of Kiryat Shimona. 
in a onto Asia and Afghanistan, the UN Office on Drugs and Crime released a new report on Sunday uh, that found uh, that Afghan farmers uh, cultivated just 10,800 hectares of opium in 2023, quite a come down from the 233,000 or so hectares, uh, hectares they cultivated in 2022. The result was a whopping 95% reduction in opium production that's presumably uh, should be credited to the Taliban-led government's drug crackdown. That's the plus side. On the minus side, that's a lot of revenue that Afghan farmers, many of whom were barely scraping by as it was, have now lost with not knock-on effects for the rest of the crippled Afghan economy. There's an opportunity here for the international community to fund projects to build a more legitimate Afghan economy, but that would probably require recognizing the aforementioned government, and that's a long shot at best for Western governments. Uh, in Pakistan, the Pakistani military says its forces defeated an attack on an airbase in the uh, Mianwali district of Pakistan's Punjab region on Saturday, killing all nine attackers. They did report some damage to three aircraft and a fuel tanker. Tehrike Jihad Pakistan, a relatively new group that seems to be an offshoot of the Pakistani Taliban, or at least emerged from the, uh, the same Diobandi religious and intellectual milieu, claimed responsibility for the attack. Uh, in Myanmar, the constituent members of the Rebel Brotherhood Alliance, the Myanmar National Democratic Alliance Army, the Tang National Liberation Army, and the Arakan Army continued their romp through Myanmar's Shan state over the weekend. The Tang National Liberation Army said that its fighters seized four more military outposts, uh, while the Myanmar National Democratic Alliance Army captured another three. Uh, the alliance has claimed the seizure of several outposts and four towns near the Chinese border, though very little about its Offensive can be confirmed. Uh, the Kachin Independence Army, or KIA, has launched its own new offensive in neighboring Kachin state, but it's unclear whether these groups coordinated their plans ahead of time. Uh, in Singapore, Lee Shanglong, who has been serving as Singaporean Prime Minister since 2004, said at a People's Action Party conference on Sunday that he intends to retire ahead of the 2025 election and turn the keys over to Deputy Prime Minister Lawrence Wong. The 71-year-old Lee had apparently been planning to retire prior to COVID, but the pandemic interrupted things. He didn't announce a firm retirement date, but suggested it would come prior to the party's 70th anniversary in November 2024. On to Africa. In Sudan, upwards of 40 or more people were killed in shelling in Sudan's capital region over the weekend, at least 15 on Saturday when shelling struck a number of homes in Khartoum, uh, and over 20 on Sunday when shelling hit an outdoor market in Omdurman. Uh, as far as I know, there's no indication who was responsible as the Sudanese military and the Rapid Support Forces group shell each other in the Khartoum area pretty regularly. Meanwhile, the RSF claimed on Saturday that its fighters had seized a military outpost in Jenina, the capital of Sudan. West Darfur state, the RSF's position in Darfur seems to be strengthening in recent weeks. Uh, in Guinea, a heavily armed commando, that's how he was described by Al Jazeera, may have broken former Guinean military dictator Musa Dadis Kamara out of prison in Conakry on Saturday. Guinean authorities later recaptured Kamara and imprisoned him again, and the reason I say this unnamed commando may have broken him out is because Kamara's lawyer is claiming that the incident was a kidnapping, not a prison break. Uh, sure, I guess we could go with that. Uh, three other men who served as officials in Kamara's 2008-2010 
military government uh, also escaped during the incident and, as far as I know, have not been recaptured. Kamara was arrested last year and is being tried for having ordered the massacre of dozens of prisoners in Conakry in September 2009. Uh, in Uganda, this uh, slipped through the cracks a few days ago, and I'm sure it's not the only thing that's slipped through the cracks lately, but the Biden administration on Monday announced its intention to drop four countries from the African Growth and Opportunity Act program, the Central African Republic, Gabon, Niger, and Uganda. For Gabon and Niger, this would appear to be another punishment for the coups those countries experienced earlier this year. In the case of the Central African Republic and Uganda, the administration cited human rights abuses as its justification, including the draconian anti-LGBT law the Ugandan government adopted back in May. Uh, AGOA, or the African Growth and Opportunity Act, allows select sub-Saharan African nations to sell products in the U.S. duty-free. The whole program is scheduled to expire in 2025, but there have been discussions in Washington about extending it or creating a successor program. Uh, On to Europe. In Ukraine, the Russian military says that a Ukrainian missile strike on the Zaliv shipyard in the Crimean city of Kerch on Saturday uh, Saturday evening damaged a Russian naval vessel. The identity of the ship is unknown, but Ukrainian officials suggested that they were attempting to target a ship capable of firing caliber cruise missiles. Uh, The extent of the damage is also unknown. A Russian missile strike in Ukraine's Zaporizhia Oblast on Saturday apparently killed a significant number of soldiers from the Ukrainian army's 128th Brigade, whose leaders had, for some reason, decided to hold an award ceremony out in the open in an active war zone. Uh, No, I don't know why. Uh, NBC News published a bombshell on Friday evening. It was too late for me to get it into the roundup that evening, but they reported that, and I'm quoting here, U.S. and European officials, end quote, uh, have been in conversation with Ukrainian officials about what sorts of concessions they might need to be prepared to make in order to reach a peace deal with Russia. These conversations apparently reflect uh, a growing sense in the North Atlantic world that the war in Ukraine is stalemated, as Ukrainian military commander Valery Zeluzhny indicated in an interview a few days ago. We covered this in Wednesday's roundup. With Russia in better shape than Ukraine simply by virtue of its much larger resources of men and materiel, with the massacre in Gaza now sucking up most of the international oxygen, and with political conditions in the West, in the U.S. in particular, no longer all that conducive to writing blank checks for the Ukrainian government, it's hard to miss the obvious move for the exit. Uh, It's unclear how far along these conversations have gotten, but it sounds like U.S. and European officials are talking about giving the Ukrainians just until the end of this year before there are some more serious discussions uh, around negotiating a peace deal. Uh, the thing is, uh, there's no indication that Volodymyr Zelensky is prepared to listen, and he said as much over the weekend. Uh, even if he is, and to be fair, NATO has a lot of leverage to dictate to Zelensky when it's time to throw in the towel, there's no indication that the Russian government uh, is interested in talking peace at this stage. Assuming the Russians can be brought around, it will be interesting to see what kind of deal can be reached with Moscow holding most of the leverage. If it's similar to or worse than, from Ukraine's perspective, a hypothetical deal that could have been negotiated, say, a year ago, there should be a lot of questions asked about the tens of thousands of lives that will have been lost for no reason. Uh, On to the Americas. In Colombia, the FARC Estado Mayor Central rebel faction announced on Sunday that it is suspending peace talks with the Colombian government. 
Those talks, along with a ceasefire that the group says is still in effect, began just last month in what at the time seemed like a significant breakthrough for President Gustavo Petro's peace initiative. The rebels didn't explain their decision except uh, to make a vague mention uh, of the government's failure to keep unspecified promises. Uh, the ceasefire, as I say, runs is still active. Uh, it runs through January 15th, so on that basis, I suppose there is time to turn this situation around. Uh, Petro's negotiations with the National Liberation Army, or ELN, hit their own bump in the road this week, uh, over the past week, when ELN fighters kidnapped uh, the father of Colombian footballer Luis Diaz. Uh, The publicity generated by such a high-profile abduction has not been especially helpful. Uh, in finally, in the United States, uh, Liz Theo Harris at Tom Dispatch highlights the warped priorities of Joe Biden's war-based economy. Uh, and I'll read you just a, a couple paragraphs here. Uh, Millions of us tuned into President Biden's Oval Office speech on his return from Israel only the second of his presidency. There he asked Congress to earmark yet another $100 billion, mainly for American military aid to Israel, Ukraine, and Taiwan, a boon to the war-profiting weapons makers, who, war-profiteering weapons makers, rather, whose CEOs will grow even richer thanks to those new contracts. Just a year after Congress killed the expanded child tax credit, which had cut official child poverty in half, Biden's speech represented a further pivot away from socially beneficial policymaking and toward further restrengthening or further strengthening of the ravenous engine of our war economy. After the speech, the nation's Katrina Vandenhuvel offered this compelling instant commentary, quote, Biden tonight rolled out a version of 21st century military Keynesianism. Let's call his policy just that. No more Bidenomics. And it consigns the U.S. to endless militarization of foreign policy, end quote. A decision to organize our economy yet more around war will also mean the further militarization of domestic policy uh, with dire consequences for poor and low-income people. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. once called such steps the, quote, cruel manipulation of the poor, end quote, a phrase he coined as part of his denunciation of the Vietnam War in the late 1960s. King was then thinking about the American soldiers fighting and dying in Vietnam, quote, on the side of the wealthy and the secure while we create a hell for the poor. Today, a similar cruel manipulation is playing out. For years, our leaders have invoked the myth of scarcity to justify inequality or inaction when it comes to widespread poverty, growing debt, and rising inequality in the United States. Now, some of them are calling for the spending of billions of dollars to functionally fund the bombardment and occupation of impoverished Gaza and a violent Israeli clampdown in the West Bank, not to speak of the possibility of a wider set of Middle Eastern wars. However, Polling numbers suggest that a surprising number of Americans have seen through the fog of war and are perhaps coming to believe that our nation's abundance should be used not as a tool of death, but as a lifeline for poor and struggling people at home and abroad. Uh, that's a little happier than we've been ending lately, so let's let's call that a day. Uh, that's it for us this weekend. Thanks to all of you for reading and or listening to the newsletter, and especially to those of you who are foreign exchanges subscribers. If you are paid foreign exchanges subscriber, you are making this newsletter possible, and you have my everlasting thanks. Uh, until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>